Hey, everyone out there, and thanks for joining us again here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. Now, you're probably used to me now, but for those who don't know me and are joining us new for the very first time, welcome. My name is Amy Ho. I am an ER doctor and ASAP Now assistant editor, and your host of this podcast, where we feature something from the magazine, from ASAP Now for the month, and we also throw in a little podcast-only content. Now, for this month, I am super excited. I'm a little biased, admittedly, because one of our features is actually from a group of guys from my own hospital. But at that hospital, John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, they have an incredibly unique program and fellowship called Street Medicine. Now, in my day job, I am actually very much a benefactor of this service line because when I see patients in the ER that are homeless or having challenges with housing, I can actually refer these patients to the street medicine team and they will provide comprehensive follow-up and care for the patient where the patient is, the street. Now, I will let the guys explain, but street medicine is just that. It's giving medicine on the street to some of our most vulnerable populations, the homeless. So joining me is Joel Hunt, acclaimed street medicine director and JPS Family Medicine Assistant Program Director, Dr. Chad Holmes, who is core faculty at the Emergency Medicine Residency at John Peter Smith Hospital, as well as the Street Medicine Fellowship Director, and also Dr. Hunter Scarborough, who is a Street Medicine Fellowship graduate, as well as now Emergency Medicine core faculty. We will actually kick off with one of their patients that we met in the parking lot of a Valero gas station that was kind enough to tell me about his experience with the street medicine team. And then we'll go ahead and do an interview with Joel, Chad, and Hunter, where we hopped into their mobile unit, which was literally a tour bus that had the back turned into a small clinic room where they give care to patients. After that, we'll pivot to a couple well-known names in emergency medicine and at ASEP, Dr. Ruben Strayer and Dr. Nick Caputo, where we'll talk something core to our mission and our values in emergency medicine by talking about airway. We'll discuss a pretty novel technique that is actually featured in the ASEP Now magazine this month. And then we will chat about when to use that, some of the pearls and pitfalls, and how to implement that into our practice. But before we start with the podcast, a quick message from our sponsor, BioFire. Cedric Dark, ASEP Now's medical editor-in-chief here with a short conversation about the BioFire GI panel. Joining me is Dr. Sean Xavier Neath, MD, PhD, FACEP from UC San Diego. BioFire could be useful in a couple clinical scenarios. First, let's consider a case where not every family member's diarrhea is from the same GI bug. 43-year-old guy presents with five days of watery diarrhea, a little bit of abdominal pain, but nothing else really concerning. His wife was recently diagnosed with norovirus. So is this going to be what he has too? Well, no. BioFire's GI panel detected enterotoxigenic E. coli and rules out norovirus, as well as a dozen other potential pathogens. So Dr. Neath, what overall benefits have you observed after adopting the syndromic BioFire GI panel? You know, the take-home point here is that Without testing, uh, any of us could have easily attributed the patient's diarrhea symptoms to exposure to norovirus. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a smoking gun in the house. His own wife had it. 
and that's something something historically we've 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 jumped to. And and here the the data from from the biofire test really helps us avoid diagnostic bias by testing each individual patient. Uh, clearly, this the, the test results norovirus negative, and the only thing positive on this was enterotoxigenic E. coli. Uh, the patient was still symptomatic during my follow-up call, and he did respond promptly to uh, initial doses of Cipro. So with that, let's kick it off with Douglas, the patient of the street medicine program at John Peter Smith in Fort Worth, Texas. So Douglas, how long have you been seeing the street medicine team? A little over three years. A little over three years. And before the pandemic. So how is it that they come and see you, or how is it that you heard about them? Well, I went to the hospital. <laughs> okay, you went to the hospital, through the ER? Uh, yeah. it, uh, they, for my foot, I had frostbite stuff. Yeah, frostbite, okay. That oh, time, during that the freeze. Time, that, was, that was bad for me. Yeah, we yeah. Saw, you, yeah. saw you then, we also were seeing somebody else. And... Yeah. Um, That's how we first When Bob was it? Was it Bob over there? Bob. Mm -hmm. Bob, yeah. Oh man, so you so you got seen for frostbite. But yeah, then... but they they gangrene they had to cut up. Oh, they had to cut it off. Mainly ended up doing it because I got angry for a minute. So for all of your follow-up then, has the oh, team been coming out and meeting the, you? The best they can, yes. The best they can. Do you get your medicine also from them? The best they pharmacy can. The best the pharmacy can. And I don't get it all from the pharmacy, I will say that. Okay. Anyway. So do you have to go to the pharmacy still to get it? Yes, but... You do. They, there's a flaw there. There's the a pharmacy flaw. pharmacy don't always give you medicines. I'm 100% JPA. JPA's connected, I know. Yeah. And I can't get my anxiety medicine or nothing. I told him. Well, how do you how do you pay for the medicines? I'm, I'm JPA's connected, 100%. So with all, homeless, homeless. with the insurance from JPS, it homeless. covers it all. Homeless. The JPS Connect that Douglas is mentioning is a program by the hospital where they offer indigent healthcare coverage, including visits, admissions, and medications, which are often actually free for the patient. So before all this happened, how did you get medical care? Or did you get medical care? I didn't care? need a lot before. I've had 129 x-rays, I've had so many fractures, broke necks, shot, stabbed, and run over, and walked up a bridge. I've done it. <laughs> I've been getting JPS help all my life, basically. I don't use the VA. And do you know anyone else that also uses JPS or uses this team in the same Bob way? Bob right over there. Bob uses it too? <laughs> Greg does too. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Amy does. Okay, so a lot of people do. I went to Adult Behavioral Health too. That's good. I don't know what happened there. They wow. tore that down. Adult behavioral health. What happened there? Behavioral health also. Yeah, like I do too. We coordinate with MHMR. Oh, that's him here. The MHMR. Oh, with Byron. The, the boss. Yeah. yeah. So Douglas, what have you? What do you think overall about the street medicine team? I've never heard I of think, something like I, this. I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I get mad sometimes because they, they can't always show up when you want them to. Yeah. But who knows when you're gonna get sick? That's true, that's true. <laughs> you know, what yeah, but because they come out to you, you don't have to find the transport to go to the hospital. This, that, this guy, that gal, that gal, <laughs> I've known quite well. They're taking good care of you? They're good people. Awesome. They are. Awesome, uh, Douglas. Any any last words? This has been awesome. Thanks so much for no, sharing. I'm not ready to die yet. Uh, no, they're a wonderful team, and I appreciate them. Oh, that's awesome. But I love them to uh, thanks a lot, Douglas. No, they're good. They don't need to go away. They need to stay here. Maybe get stronger. 
Get stronger, yeah. They're trying to build a team for sure. More units around town. Yeah, so you can go to more places. Everyone right maybe out country, you know. It would work. Yeah. It would work. Maybe out there where they can't get to. Yeah, that's true. That was the deal about the transportation. Main problem out here with us is we don't have transportation. Yeah, there's no transport and, for you to get to the hospital. And I do down the transit. I do put them down. They change it up and down, up and down. The director needs to go. That's good. So, so they come out to the van, they come to you? They come to us. They come to you. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much again, and Douglas. you know what, though? They look for you, too. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to talk to them about how is it that they found... They find me hiding. Yeah, hiding in a Valero parking lot. I like I'm going to ask them how they how they coordinate all that for sure. Well, everybody knows me and they send them at me. <laughs> no, they come up, where's Doug at? That's awesome. Well, Basically, thanks so much, Douglas, I, for sharing. Did I, did I help start this thing, Hey, Did I help start this, really? Did I? What's that? Did I help start this? Stock it? Start it. Oh, start it? Start it, the van. Anyway. Yeah. You were early. You were early to I, it. I was kind of wondering. Me and Bob. <laughs> you and Bob. You were, you were the first van patron. With me and Bob, not Bob and me. Me and Bob. <laughs> they good. Oh, perfect. Thanks so much, Douglas. And thank you so much, Dr. More on street medicine with Drs. Chad Holmes, Drs. Hunter Scarborough, and Joel Hunt after another quick message from our sponsor. So hi, Cedric Dark, back with Dr. Neath to talk about BioFire. Let's dig into another quick case. 36-year-old hospital administrator starts having several loose bowel movements with nausea, but no vomiting. There's no recent antibiotics, no travel, and of course, no patient contact because she works in the C-suite. But her kid was homesick last week with the URI. So of course, she comes to the ER asking for antibiotics. The BioFire GI panel is useful precisely for this situation, distinguishing viral from bacterial GI pathogens. Isn't it, Dr. Neath? Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the beauties of this is to actually be able to give the patient information that makes that conversation about antibiotic stewardship or the, avoiding unnecessary antibiotics so much easier. Clearly, it says on their report, they get it on their, their, their my chart. Astrovirus, they get the virus thing and they have maybe have some follow-up questions, but that whole pressure that happens during the clinical encounter to prescribe empiric antibiotics simply because somebody has diarrhea is, is now made so much easier with, with you know, actionable data like this. Now back to our street medicine segment, where I had the chance to hop in the back of the van, or the mobile health unit, with the leaders of the street medicine program. Joel Hunt, acclaimed street medicine director and JPS Family Medicine Assistant Program Director, Dr. Chad Holmes, core faculty of the JPS Emergency Medicine Residency and director of the street medicine program, and Dr. Hunter Scarborough, core faculty of the JPS EM Residency and street medicine fellowship graduate. So Joel, tell me about where we are, because this is pretty awesome. We are in the JPS Mobile Health Unit. And it's, okay, so it's a van. It's a van. <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and open with that. And, I mean, there's a lot of equipment. Like, we are in the back hub. It looks like the whole thing's been converted into a clinic, kind of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a, a, an exam room on wheels kind of concept. Looks like a airport shuttle and a Sprinter van had a baby. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's got a couple refrigerators, uh, two computers, a printer scanner which is really helpful 
um, a sink, an exam bed, wall-mounted um, ENT equipment and blood pressure, a blood pressure cuff, and a few seats. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of seeing some of your fr fridges. They say stuff about like labs and like vaccines. Like you guys carry that on board? We are set up to carry it. We've had some challenges getting the supply uh -huh. uh, for different reasons. Uh, there's been some barriers, so we don't have any currently, but we are set up to carry vaccines. We do carry uh, labs and do lab work in the field. Is it like point of care labs or how are you getting Most that? of it is uh, just regular phlebotomy okay. and, and urine. Um, we have limited point of care, like uh, blood sugar and pregnancy and that kind of stuff. Gotcha, so you'll take it back with you, mm -hmm. run it, and then how do the patients get their results? Just the same way um, other patients would either surprising number not a large number but a surprising number have my chart yeah know? yeah with internet because yeah, you need internet to do that on the and you know pin us down what does this mean yeah um <laughs> and then we'll follow up that's the kind of the name of the game of street medicine is the chronic follow-up so yep. we we try to find them give them every ability uh for them to find us with phone numbers mm -hmm. they text and call and email um so that we can follow up with them to to let them know their blood results that's super cool. So when I came to JPS, I was like shocked. I was thinking this is the best well taken care of homeless population I have ever seen. And I honestly had never heard of street medicine. Yeah. Can one of you guys just tell me what is street medicine? This is something I've been like indoctrinated over for the past several years, but it's really interesting. So uh, kind of interesting to see what we all say i guess we won't be we blinded but our own definition yeah. probably um kind of the the canned and and accurate definition is it's reality-based care uh taken to people literally where they're at um yeah. on the streets sh in shelters sometimes abandoned homes places not meant for human habitation um so it's really a, an, an ideology of of meeting people um right where they're existing and it's it's foundation is in chronic complex disease management, chronic care, primary care, um, and connecting them not only with um, the resources that they need, like at point of care, but also helping connect with other uh, social services. And and also, I think, a, 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 I'm not trying to steal anybody else's thunder, but uh, a mainstay is, is really just trying to bring some humanity yeah. from, uh, from the system, the healthcare system in general, not anyone in particular, um, that isn't necessarily so adept anymore at at humanizing people or maintaining that that human connection with all the things that we have to do, um, and, and processes and workflows and and efficient, you know, trying to work towards efficient uh, goals. So that's something else that we're able to do, and, and it comes up pretty regularly. I think that's a good. Point to yeah, off. it's it's almost like concierge medicine or the way medicine should be, but for a highly vulnerable patient population. That's how I feel about it. But I'll let you guys go yeah, ahead. Yeah, Dr. Exactly. Holmes. Um, I think, like Joel mentioned, the connectivity part of it is um, a super important piece for me as an emergency medicine physician, um, and that was a big reason for um, me wanting to get involved because it was actually shocking. Um, to know that the hospital had a street medicine team and I had been um, at JPS for 
a number of years before even realizing its existence. Um, and it just made a ton of sense to kind of build that relationship and collaboration between emergency medicine at a county hospital and a street medicine team that is, you know, taking care of a lot of patients that we often see in the ED. Um, so that's, that's a big part of what I try and do and promote amongst uh, my colleagues and, and the residents um, is just kind of realizing that the patients we see in the ED um, do have lives that are incredibly difficult and taking a little bit more time to think about discharge planning and when we say we're discharging a patient home, um, what does home actually mean to them because it's typically not not what we think about for um, you know the majority of, of patients so um, that's a big part of my involvement and kind of how I try and practice and um, kind of change the practice patterns a bit for our residents and, and colleagues and really just the, the little things that can be done that can make a have a big impact on on our vulnerable homeless patient population yeah because we only get them in the ER for like a very small episode of care so I definitely want to come back to Dr. Holmes and Joel for sure to talk about how in the world did the street medicine collaboration start. But I actually really want to also hear from Dr. Scarborough. So Dr. Scarborough was one of the residents at JPS and then went on to do a street medicine fellowship uh, and is now faculty actually. So Dr. Scarborough, I would love to hear why you were interested in street medicine. So it was fairly established, I think, by that point. Yeah, I mean, the, I'll, I'll just say one thing real quick. The street medicine team at JPS has been in existence for Joel, what, almost 10 years now? It is, yeah, uh, nine. Nine, nine years. So yeah, it was well established before we, um, between the three of us really created the Street Medicine Fellowship. Hunter was our inaugural Street Medicine <laughs> Fellow um, and a unique fellowship program in that we, as far as we know, are, are the only fellowship to have a dedicated emergency medicine crossover street medicine mm -hmm. fellowship. So I'll let him speak on those specifics. Yeah. yeah, so I did my residency training at JPS for emergency medicine. And while I was there, I think we have to shout out Dr. Kyle Patton a little bit for oh, yeah. especially Chad and I getting interested or even realizing that it was a thing at JPS because like we were talking about, it's it's been established for a while, but maybe not at the forefront, especially for our minds in the emergency medicine world. It was something that was new to us. So Kyle Patton was a family medicine resident who did a fourth year track to focus on street medicine. And actually it was kind of funny. So when I was a resident, I did a, my ultrasound rotation and Kyle Patton was on it at this the same time. Yeah, it just happened <laughs> to be on it. And so doing ultrasounds, going around the hospital, you, you chat like you do and learning that he was a fourth year and what the heck are you doing a fourth year for? And yeah. It's the street medicine thing. What is the street medicine thing? And talking to him about it, it seemed so logical for EM folks to take an interest, especially if you work in a county type of setting we have this patient population that has really unique needs. And I think sometimes in the emergency department, we get frustrated that maybe we don't have all the tools to understand their problems, to help with their problems. And a, maybe a feeling of powerlessness of you want to help people mm -hmm. so, so badly, and then not understanding how you can do that. And so talking to Kyle, became interested in it, met Joel, 
I actually did a couple of elective rotations while I was a resident to spend some weeks with the street medicine team and just loved it. Yeah, we had actually developed the EM. We'd actually developed the EM street medicine elective prior to a couple years prior to the fellowship. So um, that was kind of our first direct um, in or involvement with street medicine from the ED was getting our residents out there on the streets with the team and um, letting them have that opportunity to experience what our patients live like on a kind of day-to-day basis. <clears throat> so we had had a few already go through the rotation um, while we were crafting the um, fellowship um, part of the team. Yeah, and I, I remember that because I remember working in the ER, we'd see a patient that was, um, you know, a, a homeless patient and we would call the resident who was rotating and then they would usually just come see the patient in the ER, help establish care, um, I assume follow up in an outreach and it was like incredible like it was the warmest handoff you could have um, and and I think Hunter said something pretty awesome of you know there's all these things that we wish we could help them with that we can't and it's like you guys are really the bridge um, that again I don't think most patients regardless of homeless status or not have in like modern healthcare today yeah the the bridge um is definitely there now. We send each other referral street medicine to the ED sending patients. There's you know, now direct contact. Joel can text me or Hunter or any of the other um, faculty and say, hey, heads up, we got a patient that actually needs to come to the ED. This is kind of what we are seeing here. This is kind of what we suggest. And yeah. you know, then able to kind of take over care in the emergency department knowing they're coming and then you know, follow up again with the street medicine team or vice versa. We have a referral system in our um, EMR uh, where we can easily put in a referral at the time of discharge or even admission. The street medicine team gets those almost instantly and, and does everything in their power to follow up and see that patient out on the street for whatever it is that we've felt they could benefit seeing the team for. Yeah. So I want to bounce back to Joel for a second. So Joel, you are colloquially known as street Jesus. <laughs> I think I think partially because of the street medicine, partially because of the long flowing locks. But I mean, Chad and Hunter have said this, but this was really something you were at the inception of. Like, how did you come to start street medicine at JPS? Actually, um, somebody uh, named Don Zeger mm-hmm. back in 20... <clears throat> 13, I believe, um, with the 1115 waiver project. They're, they were tasked to um, find a way to reduce emergency utilization in the homeless population. Okay. And that was sort of... It was ER utilization mm-hmm. they're trying to decrease. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's EMA, super interesting. ER, yeah. And so they didn't know about street medicine, as I understand at that time. They just knew that, that there was maybe this thing that could happen, maybe go to people. Um, and through... a convolution of different conferences and conversations uh, I, I got in touch with somebody through UNT and got connected with Don and was like yeah this is this is what I do I started a street medicine program in Salt Lake City and um, so long story short that's how I came it, the the funding was there and the team was there um, already I was the last person to get hired but they any kind of knowledge about how to do street medicine or what to do wasn't all there, but mm-hmm. the, the funding and the and the um, will of the organization was there, which is immensely 
I can't overstate that enough. That's without that, it's a it's a real uphill battle. So all those pieces were already in place whenever I showed up. Um, and then there were some other great things that Don had done by way of uh, technology mm-hmm. with the FYI flag and Epic mm-hmm. and and uh, <clears throat> getting the conversation. That's the right word. The uh, data sharing between Tarrant County Homeless Coalition, which really helped us identify who our uh, population was and uh, by, by kind of flagging in our system, casting the net really wide, being very sensitive, um, using you know broad logic to do that matching, which helped create this database that is still ongoing and needs a lot of data work, but um, it's created a, a, a great way for us to be able to identify and continue and, and try to manage our population, at least get an idea. Yeah, it's a big population, and I'm um, obviously biased because I, you know, kind of assist on the data side now uh, for you guys, and it's hard to define even who is homeless because it's episodic a lot of times. Um, A lot of times there is no tracking. A lot of times you have to ask. Um, You know, it's like a social determinant, but without a discrete data field (laughs) and no address to tie people to. Yeah. Yeah, it's comparing apples to apples with homelessness is virtually Im- impossible yeah. unless you just had a static group in a shelter where you mm-hmm. can manage watch them every single day but yeah and a lot of homeless people are not in shelters and or don't utilize them mm-hmm. so it, it's interesting like one of the experiences i've had at, at um you know in the er is that there's homeless like shelters homeless and established like they show up in shelters they have phones you can contact them and then there's actually a, a group of homeless patients that are out in the woods like they don't use shelters they almost never use the healthcare system. They don't have social security numbers and then they just disappear until they show up in you know some other state. And you guys kind of get to see them, right? Mm-hmm. That's the primary group that we mm-hmm. try to see or the unshelters, what we call them. Anybody mm-hmm. not staying in a shelter, a, a place meant for people experiencing homelessness yeah. to include domestic violence shelters. Anything else is kind of our, our bread and butter. Yeah. So the woods, the occasionally we go into the jail sidewalks, you know, bridges, that kind of thing. Yeah, true street. So I do want to hear a little bit about what is like a typical outreach day for you guys? Because again, like most residents, most fellows do not get this experience, but what does it mean if someone did do a street medicine fellowship or, you know, whatever? I'll take the, our side and then do the learner side. Um, So every day we, we uh, start the day off, the morning off by huddling, uh, and figuring out who we're going to see by a predetermined list, kind of a schedule that we use. Uh, it's an epic, the reminder list. So we manually mm-hmm. add and, and remove and, and update informationally where people are. So we, we have the county broken into three geographic areas that we go to the same, by, by geographic areas, I mean north, south, and central. Mm-hmm. Very big. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, schedule people out so that we have a general concept of which part of the county we're going to be going to and then that's a each day it's a pretty significant list more than we could see so then we pare down that list to the uh, people with the greatest need of whatever that is either health need generally that's our primary focus but if there's some lab to follow up um, or some if they miss this thing they're not going to get their housing or some kind of big need we'll prioritize them clump them together with geography and then come up with our our schedule that quickly will fall apart after we <laughs> after we plan it, but at least we can say we planned it. 
Um, and then we and then we strike out and go see them. It's a surprising number of people have phones that we'll try to yeah. text and coordinate with. Um, and that's hit or miss whether they were able to charge yeah. it or whatever. But um, yeah, and so we'll go out and we'll provide um, care what that we can, which is pretty pretty decent primary care. It's not a huge different of what we can or can't do here with or without the van, honestly, um, compared to somebody in the clinic. Mm -hmm. We don't have EKG. We don't have as many point of care um, testing capabilities. And sometimes privacy um, can be an mm -hmm. issue. But otherwise, I mean, most of primary care is, you know, a history and a physical. And we can, we can do that and order the tests and, and review the labs. So we... Um, that's what we go and, and try to see patients. I'll add, um, I would say the encounter with people on the street is, is different than a traditional um, healthcare encounter in that um, besides the environment, which makes it very different, but the actual person-to-person -person encounter, the power the power has shifted. We've come to mm -hmm. them. So we're in, technically we're in their house. Yeah. And um, so we, it, it changes how we approach them and how we approach their issues. And it really is the epitome of a patient-centered yeah. model um, in that we're asking if we can um, serve them rather than them coming to us, mm -hmm. you know, asking to be served. And I think that is some of the secret sauce of, of street medicine is that, is that um, humility, both structurally but also inherently with people um, of, of bringing bringing that that humanity and it and it plays itself out in really being able to I think identify the issues health issues that would come up whether or not they're with us or in a clinic or in the ER um, but also the the driving source like mm -hmm. the, the, the why behind the why because um, I think it creates a little bit safe safer environment um, for them to like psychologically safe emotionally yeah. safe to be able to share those those things and um, so that is something that we do on a daily basis and with our learners I think it's really really exciting for them to be able to see to see that and it's really great I love when um, FMEM residents come and see see somebody that they've seen recently mm -hmm. in the inpatient setting or the ED setting and can compare and contrast their interaction with that patient in the hospital setting versus the outpatient setting and it's usually pretty profound yeah. for them and, and something that almost uniformly everybody comments on. Yeah. Yeah, and just to piggyback off of that, <coughs> I think something that comes up a lot is questions about safety uh, from hmm. from friends and family, mm -hmm. medical people, kind of everyone. I just had a friend in town who's a pediatrician asked that exact question, do you ever feel unsafe or threatened dangerous situations? Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot wrapped up in that question that people don't want to ask is kind of the yeah. question within the question right but I at least on a personal level I can't you'll probably agree I generally feel safest doing outreach medicine especially compared to maybe like an emergency medicine setting and that's less I think about the individual places we work or that we go on outreach and more about like Joel was talking about the context because yeah in the emergency department 
a patient may or may not even want to be there. Yeah, it's, it's adversarial sometimes. Right, yeah. right. It's, it's, it's a scary place. It can be loud. It can be confining versus we've talked about what these visits look like. I know, mm-hmm. Dr. Ho, you, you kind of brought up the idea of concierge medicine. When <laughs> I explain it, it really is ironically more like doing a home visit. Yeah. We're going to see somebody in their environment. Many of these times it's established patients. We've texted them. They're expecting us. And then worst case scenario, you go to see someone and they're not in the mood, it's not the right day, mm-hmm. and they can make it clear, hey, I don't want to see y'all, and that's all it has to be. Yeah. And you contrast that with a clinic or an EM setting where you're, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do stuff to yeah, you anyways so. and hold you down <laughs> so we can stab you with so, things. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> when it comes to safety, I, I feel very safe for that yeah. reason. Chad, I definitely want to hear about the fellowship. Like what can EM residents who are interested in street medicine do to learn more, to get more training? Like what do you guys offer? I think for anyone who has a particular interest in just social medicine in general, um, street medicine falls kind of under that larger umbrella. Um, The fellowship will provide a variety of opportunities um, within the street medicine realm. Um, A few of those being Uh, substance use disorder Um, we are pretty big on that particular topic we do all prescribe suboxone we all have our DEX waiver Um, (coughs) so Joel in particular has a fairly large population of patients on suboxone that he manages and and follows with regularly Um, infectious disease type issues Um, we have the ability to treat hepatitis C through a um, what's it called, the pharmacy assistance program, PAP. Um, So we can provide um, those medications, which are- Like Savaldi and stuff? um, Mavericks. Yeah, the thing that's like $100,000, yeah. They're very expensive. um, Wow. But we, the team has developed a way to work around that expense and provide patients with that treatment. And the team has had a lot of um, success stories and- That's um, incredible. Yeah. Um, and then just kind of the, the day-to-day bread and butter of street medicine, which we've been talking a lot about the outreach portion. So a lot of patient care and patient contact out on, on the streets in these different environments. Um, and then, you know, we don't fall under any particular governing body. So essentially, um, we are in control of what the curriculum looks like. Um, we can be very flexible with, um, particular areas of interest the you know incoming fellow might have and we can really tailor the their year in the fellowship to those particular interests whether it's you know again substance use or Mm -hmm. research or whatever it is between the three of us Joel in particular um, having a lot of contacts uh, across the country to um, for you know resources or um, other experiences Um, Hunter when he did the fellowship he did a number of away rotations um, he spent time up in Pittsburgh with Jim Withers and his team. Um, he has also been to uh, California, a couple mm-hmm. of different locations. Um, Pittsburgh, I went to um, Venice Beach in California. Mm-hmm. And in Texas, I went to Austin mm-hmm. and San Antonio. So it's, it's unique in that, you know, street medicine can mean a lot of, like we've said, mean a lot of different things. Um, So there's going to be exposure to all of those different areas, plus, you know, whatever else we come up with along the way. It's pretty, pretty cool. 
Yeah, it's organic, it's decentralized. Yeah. This is an incredible experience. I'll make sure that there are show notes for the fellowship for any EM residents interested. I know Joel did a pretty cool NPR piece on street medicine as well, maybe a year or two back that I'll find in Lincoln. He's looking suspect. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll link in a couple things. Um, but any last thoughts from you guys? This has been a really incredible experience and it's been awesome meeting one of your patients because you're right, it's totally different meeting them Very out different. where they are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, any, any EM resident interested, we're actively recruiting and always um, happy to communicate and answer questions. Um, uh, we do a lot of collaboration in like, giving lectures or grand rounds to other institutions or organizations that may have a social medicine program or are trying to start street medicine and are interested in what we do. So we're happy to collaborate um, in that kind of way as well. Um, we do actually also have the ability to take IM and FM uh, residents into the fellowship. Um, your clinical time would just be a bit different, but the street medicine experience would be the, the same. Cool. So EM, FM, or IM. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. Last words from Joel. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to say, because uh, I don't think I commented on the, from the street medicine into the ED, mm -hmm. um, has the relationship has been really helpful and um, like tangibly different. Um, and I don't, I would love to, I wish we could, maybe there is a way to retrospectively look and see, I don't know how to measure that exactly, but the awareness, like they're saying, and the more that mm -hmm. we're having more EM um, people um, with this knowledge and um, and exposure, it, it sure seems like just from the discharges and from the lack of hearing negative experiences mm -hmm. um, seems to be uh, a real benefit. And then from just a practical clinician standpoint, having somebody to be able to to talk to um, that gets it mm -hmm. is really, really helpful, really helpful because it's not rocket science, but if you don't get it, it's hard to to make like make things that don't really make sense make sense in terms of trying to navigate and coordinate. And it's all these little this you know death by a thousand cuts. All these little tiny things that make all the difference. And so having uh, having the EM relationship has been really really helpful in making that making those transitions and those coordinations helpful. Yeah, and we love this from the ER standpoint. Like it's. Guarantee, pretty, well, as guaranteed as you can get follow up, which is, you know, peace of mind and I think amazing for the patients. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone at ASAP Now. I am super pleased today to be joined by two big ER doctors um, talking airway. So we have joining us Dr. Ruben Strayer, emergency physician and addiction physician at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, and also Dr. Nick Caputo, ER doctor at New York City Lincoln Medical Center. So thanks to both you guys for joining us. We had a pretty cool, I thought, article for the November ASAP Now, Airway Choices in Emergency Medicine, where you guys tell us about VAFI. So tell me, what is VAFI? Nick, why don't you start and I'll jump in. Sure. So uh, VAFI is an acronym that stands for uh, Video Assisted uh, Flexible Endoscopic Intubation. And it's a technique that uh, Ruben and I have uh, 
used in the emergency department and have kind of, you know, nuanced into our own sort of uh, um, advanced airway technique that um, uses a video uh, laryngoscope, so a glide scope, um, as well as a uh, flexible intubating bronchoscope in order to manage uh, difficult airways. Um, and you can even use it on basic airways as well. Um, but I think that's the gist of it, Ruben, if you want to add anything to that. Sure. So VAFI Video Assisted Flexible Endoscopic Intubation is a two-person procedure where uh, you take advantage of the strengths of a hyperangulated video laryngoscope and the strengths of a flexible endoscope, which is often referred to as a bronchoscope or a fiber optic bronchoscope, even though we're not doing bronchoscopy and the devices are no longer fiber optic. Uh, you take advantage of the strengths of both to minimize the weaknesses of both. So um, with hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, uh, we get amazing views of the larynx and anyone can stick a hyperangulated blade into the mouth and get a great view with minimal training. But that great view comes at a price and that price is that it's hard to deliver the tube around that hyperangulated curve. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of techniques that have been developed to help people do that. Uh, the rigid stylets, stop, pop and drop, all sorts of crazy uh, angles that people approach at, but none of these techniques can really overcome the problem, which is that with a hyperangulated blade, you're trying to go up one curve and then down another curve, down the second curve of the trachea. And you can't really do that with a rigid stylet. The device that allows you to do that is a flexible endoscope where you can drive the tip. So VAFI is a technique that allows the use of a hyperangulated blade or a standard geometry blade, but better, a hyperangulated blade to get you that amazing view but you can overcome the problem with hyperangulated video laryngoscopy by using the flexible endoscope to drive around one curve and then switch direction and drive down the other curve. Only a flexible endoscope can do that. And it allows you to do this in a time period that's fast enough to be useful during RSI. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool because I love using the endoscope and I also love doing glide scope. I've never put the two together, which is why I thought this article was so novel, but to back up a little bit, let's just start with the equipment. I think most people have, you know, glide scopes and such, but I don't know that everyone has these flexible endoscopes. Can you help me understand some of the equipment or brands or even just vendors we might see for that? So we know what to ask for at our department. Uh, it's important to remember that there are lots of different vendors making these devices and GlideScope Verathon has been the most successful at, at marketing to emergency docs. Um, and so most of us think of the word GlideScope as synonymous with video laryngoscopy or even hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, but there are a variety of vendors and of both the flexible endoscopes and also the video laryngoscopes. So for example, stores, the company stores makes mm -hmm. the CMAC, uh, brand and they have really all the same features as the GlideScope and there are a variety of other um, flexible endoscopes and video laryngoscopes as well. And you can use really any video laryngoscope device and any flexible endoscope device. What's changed in recent years is two things. Number one, flexible endoscopy has become a single use product, which overcomes so many of the limitations that kept fiber optic bronchoscopy out of the hands of emergency docs. Fiber optic bronchoscopes are fragile and expensive and are really hard to maintain in most emergency departments. But a single use flexible endoscope, a scope uh, is one example, both 
stores and Verathon make their own single-use uh, flex blendoscopes to use with their video platforms. These devices allow this incredible technology, this very powerful technology of flexible endoscopy to be used really in any emergency department because you don't have to worry about sterilization. You don't have to worry about it breaking. These are single-use devices. So those are the sort of material considerations when you're thinking about VAFI. Yeah, and that's super helpful. Like I love, like I said, the flexible endoscope. I've always worked somewhere that had a disposable one. I think they're about two hundred dollars per, um, you know, per disposable part. So I think that is a slight limitation. But I totally agree. Like you don't have to bring out this huge, huge, huge tower, which is clunky and hard to maneuver and just difficult to use sometimes. Um, which again makes this a pretty incredible adjunct for airway. But l- help me understand a little bit. When would you turn to this as, say, your first pass technique? Or where would you layer it in your backup of, let's say, you know, your run-of-the-mill intubation? So personally, I, I turn to this as my um, go-to in physiologically or anatomically difficult airways. Um, it just allows for me to, you know, as, as Ruben eloquently stated, uh, you know, use the strengths of both devices and minimize the weaknesses of them. Um, in the setting of, you know, in a physiologically difficult airway, somebody that I don't necessarily want to paralyze, um, be able to do that in the safest manner possible. Um, and again, in an anatom- anatomically difficult airway and somebody where, you know, as Ruben is saying, the, the beauty of this is that you have that dynamic tip that you're, you can really angle in any direction and get around, you know, hyperangulated curves, um, move up, move down. So for me, it's my first uh, go-to when I have a physiologically or anatomically difficult airway or both a physiologically and anatomically difficult airway. Um, but I've also done it in just standard uh, RSI um, for practice. Um, and I, I think doing that actually helps you in terms of the nuance, the technique that um, is needed in order to, to do this. Um, when it is a high stakes situation. Yeah, just to build on that, um, VAFI is a super powerful technique that is also really easy to do. And you can use it in um, a variety of different airway contexts. Uh, So you can decide that you wanna go first off with VAFI as your primary approach, and you can do that in an RSI fashion using a paralytic, or you can do it in a breathing technique where you keep the patient breathing either awake using topicalization in sort of a conventional awake intubation approach, topicalized awake intubation or awake tracheal intubation as it's called in in anesthesia. And that patient is fully awake and breathing and you maintain the maximum amount of safety, but that requires time. It requires patient cooperation. It requires um, some degree of skill applying topicalized, highly concentrated lidocaine. It requires that you have uh, concentrated lidocaine. So that's why... ATI, uh, topicalized awake intubation, has not been well adopted by emergency docs. You can use uh, VAFI in a, a breathing technique facilitated by ketamine, uh, ketamine-facilitated intubation or ketamine-only intubation, where you use usually a dissociative dose of ketamine without a paralytic to keep the patient breathing during your intubation procedure while they're not paralyzed. So you can use you can use VAFI during a ketamine-only approach where you keep the patient breathing but dissociated with ketamine. And this affords some safety benefit over paralysis if you're very concerned about, for example, an anatomically difficult airway where you may not be able to see the cords at all, regardless of the the technique, or in someone who won't tolerate even a very brief period of apnea uh, in a profound oxygenation deficit or profoundly acidemic patient. So you can use 
Fafi in, in those situations. You can also use it again as a primary RSI technique. I see Vafi actually most often being used as an RSI rescue. And unlike conventional awake tracheal intubation, where you have to uh, maneuver uh, a flexible endoscope through the nose or through the difficult anatomy of the mouth, which is actually in many cases harder than through the nose, and that takes time, because you're using the laryngoscope to carve out a path for the flexible endoscope, because you're visualizing the larynx using the video laryngoscope and you're delivering the tip of the endoscope right to the larynx and only using the endoscope to drive through those difficult curves, it makes, it makes the technique more akin to a bougie technique. And in fact, it's been called a super bougie technique. It has more in common with the bougie than it does with conventional um, topicalized awake technique. And so if you do an RSI and you get an okay view, but you can't deliver the tube or you're not getting quite good enough of you, you can come out and then uh, either reattempt with a different blade or go right back in with your flexible endoscope and in a two-person technique. And you can do it rapidly enough so that uh, you can build it right into your RSI rescue plan. Yeah, I really like what you said about super bougie. Like, you're right. It's basically a bougie that you can see everything of where the bougie's going. Like, you guys, I mean, honestly, have me convinced. Like, you, we can do this anytime. Um, what are some, you know, pearls and pitfalls for ED docs that are trying this for the first time? Or what to communicate to nursing or RT who might not be familiar with this? Because I'm basically ready to try this my next shift. Yeah, so I, I think some of the pearls that I've, um, I've, I've learned... Uh, over the last two years or two and a half years doing this um, have been it's it's much easier with a single screen so if the equipment that you have um, uh, you know if you can get a split screen um, have that directly in front of you uh, so that both operators can see the screen it, it just makes it much easier than if you have two separate screens um, it puts everybody on sort of the same page um, you know sometimes having the paralytics uh, at bedside um, to push as you're intubating the patient, that that sort of helps. So, you know, as Ruben says, you can do a ketamine only, and I've, I've done, uh, you know, several of those, um, but it does get to a point where it, it's just a little bit easier if the patient is paralyzed. So once you get a good view in, you're sort of at the cords, you're trying to anesthetize the cords by uh, um, aspirating some lidocaine on there. The patient's sort of like moving around a little bit. Um, you could push, you know, a quick acting sucks, um, and 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 that sort of it's it's pretty cool when when you see it. You just see the cords fall wide open, and then you could pass um, pretty easily um, at at that point. Um, I don't know, what else do you think, Ruben? Yeah, those are a bunch of good pearls. Um, it is definitely nice to have one screen that you can split into two, and both the latest generation. Verathon and stores devices allow that on their video platforms. You definitely do not need that. So if you have one platform for your flexible endoscope and another platform for your video laryngoscope, you can put one screen usually coming from the right side of the patient and then the other screen usually coming from the left side of the patient. And you kind of position both screens kind of over the patient and that works very well. There's really no problem doing that. Um, when you're using uh, Vafi, as when you're when when you're using the flexible endoscope to uh, to intubate, the positioning of the providers is also important. You want to have one provider slightly to the left of the patient's head, and that's going to be your video laryngoscope uh, provider, who will get your first view, 
and then scoot even a little bit more to the left to make room for the second provider who's going to be either directly behind the head or maybe just slightly to the right. And you want to make sure that your equipment is ready and positioned properly for that for that to all work well. And uh, the other thing is that the other thing you want to keep in mind is that there's a tendency for the video laryngoscope operator to remove the blade a little bit early, perhaps after you get a good view with a flexible endoscope or even after you've cannulated the cords with a flexible endoscope, but you really want to leave that video laryngoscope blade in place, which will keep the tongue and the soft tissues of the mouth out of the way until the tube is fully advanced into the trachea and um, the flexible endoscope is removed. And of course, just like when you're using a bougie, if you get holdup on the endotracheal tube, you want to twist counterclockwise if that, if that holdup occurs uh, right at the entrance to the larynx. And then if you get held up further down into the larynx, you want to, you want to twist clockwise. And I, 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 I would just add, you know, one of the benefits of this is that it really should um, eliminate right main stem um, or too shallow of an intubation because really your landmark as you're going in is the carina. So if you place that camera right above the carina, as you back out, you can see where the tip of your ET tube is, and that allows you to place the, the tube where it needs to be. Um, and, and, and so things like right main stemming um, should really uh, be minimized by this technique. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I again think this goes into exactly what Ruben said, that this is the super bougie. Like no longer do I take the bougie and feel for tracheal rings. Like I can just go down and see <laughs> where it's at and see the carina. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. And Ruben's point about not removing the video laryngoscope until the procedure is complete is huge. You know, that's actually one of the pitfalls, you know, that I, I've seen is when, you know, uh, one of the operators sort of gets the the flexible scope past the cords and then the other person removes the laryngoscope and then it's a little difficult to actually um, pass the tube and you can't really troubleshoot it because you don't have that direct visualization again what ends up happening is we end up putting the video laryngoscope back in to see what's going on um, and, and, and so Ruben's point I can't stress enough about not removing that video laryngoscope until the procedure is done and to me that is you confirm the tube placement by you know, direct visualization with the, the tip of the, the bronchoscope um, at the crine. And then as you back out, uh, seeing where the tip of the ET tube is, then you can remove the, um, the video laryngoscope. I'll include one last sort of optional point here you may or may not want to include, which is that an underappreciated pitfall in the management of a profoundly hypoxic patient is the pitfall of right mainstem intubation, which most of the time doesn't matter very much. You right main stem it, and we do it all the time because you know we're our, our catecholamines are up, our own provider catecholamines are up, and so we right main stem the tube, and then you figure it out on the X-ray, and you pull back the tube a little bit, and it's it's no big deal. But in a profoundly hypoxic patient, when you take out one lung, that is a really big deal. And uh, using a flexible endoscope, uh, which is brought within reach with again these single-use flexible endoscopes, and I think brought within reach into RSI by uh, the VAFI technique allows you to place that tube in exactly the right place where you know it's right above that carina and you don't have to wait for that um, x-ray. You don't have to rely on breath sounds, which are notoriously unreliable, to achieve maximal oxygenation right at the outset of care.
Yeah, I think those are really awesome pearls because, I mean, you guys have me convinced. Like, if you have the equipment, there's not a reason to not do this, if nothing else, to get used to it. So when you have an airway you really need it for, you are ready. So I want to thank um, both Dr. Caputo and Dr. Strayer for sharing your time and talking to us about VAFI. And for all of our listeners out there, that's VAFI, V-A-F-E-I. But you can read more about it at uh, the ASAP Now magazine. So thanks again, guys. Thank you very much, Amy. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Back to Dr. Dark for a final word from our sponsor. All right, Cedric Dark again with one last question for our expert, Dr. Neath, about the BioFire GI panel. Is BioFire the future rapid diagnostic testing in the ED setting for cases of gastroenteritis? The multiplexing panel provides so much more versatility than our historic tools. When I think about the beginning of my career waiting three days for stool culture, obviously we were all uh, had a strong bias towards empiric treatment of whatever it was with three days of Cipro. And, and by and large, uh, most of our patients did okay, but clearly some would develop C. diff, others would have no response. We were basically shooting in the dark. And now something, the, you know, the BioFire Multiplex has taken us to the next level. It gives us really good speciation and, and the very clear differentiation of uh, diarrhea illness that needs uh, antimicrobial therapy and uh, diarrheal illness that actually needs only supportive therapy. All right, well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Neath, and thanks to all of the emergency docs out there for listening to ASAP Nowcast with our host, Dr. Amy Faith Ho. So that is it for us this month. Thanks again for tuning in, and as always, huge thanks to our guests, for which otherwise we would not be able to put together this podcast. So thank you to Joel Hunt, Dr. Hunter Scarborough, Dr. Chad Holmes, and Dr. Nick Caputo, and Dr. Ruben Strayer for sharing their expertise and discussing with us. Now we'll be back next month with a brand new podcast with more features from the magazine. Be sure to check out next month the features on telemedicine, a very cool case report of Fitzhugh Curtis, and actually a feature on one of my content favorites, in-flight emergencies. As always, we are wanting to improve and give you content that you want to hear and learn more about. So we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us if you have an idea, at ASAPNow, or feel free to tweet me direct, at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. Thanks again to everyone for coming, and we will see you all next time. <laughs>